Greetings and welcome to another episode of From John to Justin. And we're back. I took 36 days to put out every single election in Canadian history, and it was a lot of work. I did it daily, you guys followed along, and it was awesome. But we're back to looking at the opposition leaders who never became Prime Minister. And I'm looking forward to it. So let's get right to it. As usual, if you want to support the podcast, you can for as little as $3 a month. Just go to patreon.com slash CanadaEHX. You can also donate to the podcast by going to CanadaEHX.com and clicking donate. And I'd like to say welcome to my new patrons, Colin Johnson, Katie Caldwell, Jeff Hershey, and Kyle Murray. And I also want to say thank you to Douglas Campbell, who donated to the podcast. I do this full time. I do four podcasts, I do five episodes a week, and it's a lot of work. And every dollar you give helps keep it all going. If you like, you can email me at craig at CanadaEHX.com. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-A-I-R-D, and I'm on Instagram at Bairdo37. As we're back looking at the opposition leaders who never became Prime Minister, we've reached the 1960s. John Diefenbaker had taken over as leader of the Progressive Conservatives on December 14, 1956, and he would remain in charge until September 8, 1967. By that point, the glory days for Diefenbaker were in the past, and the party was ready to replace him. For Diefenbaker, by 1964, the great Canadian flag debate had hurt his image in the country. Completely opposed to the new flag, Diefenbaker would continually fight the Liberals in Parliament over it, until finally one of his own MPs invoked closure on the debate so the bill could pass. Around this same time, the dissenters and the Progressive Conservatives were pushing for Diefenbaker to retire. The Progressive Conservatives from Toronto were especially opposed to Diefenbaker. And with the election loss of 1965, Progressive Conservative Party President Dalton Camp began a campaign behind the scenes to remove Diefenbaker from his position. There was no formal leadership review process at the time, but Camp would run for re-election as party president on the platform of holding a leadership convention by the end of 1967. During the Progressive Conservative 1966 convention, Camp changed the seating arrangements so that the first 10 rows were made up of those who did not support Diefenbaker. When the cameras were on Diefenbaker, the television viewers saw unmoved delegates in front of Diefenbaker, and several other delegates shouted Diefenbaker down. When Camp was re-elected to his position, a party leadership convention was held in 1967. At the leadership convention, Diefenbaker would run to hold his position, but he never won more than 12.2% of the vote and he was forced to withdraw by the end of the third round, ending his time as leader. And while Robert Stanfield would become the new leader of the party, and I'll be covering him next week, there was a two-month gap between when Stanfield won and when he could take his seat in Parliament through a by-election win. As a result, from September 9, 1967 to November 5, 1967, Michael Starr served as the leader of the opposition. Starr was born in Coppercliff, Ontario, November 14, 1910. As a young man, Starr would drop out of high school after grade 10, and he began to work for the Oshawa Times for $5 a week, working 54 hours a week. Oshawa had a large Ukrainian population, and Starr, a man of Ukrainian descent, started to become an important figure in the Ukrainian community in the city. In 1933, Starr would marry Anne Zaritsky, and the couple would remain married for the rest of her life, having a son and daughter. In 1944, he would be elected to the Oshawa City Council, and he would serve as a councillor until 1949. That year, 
he would win his mayoral election bid, serving as the mayor of Oshawa until 1952. In 1951, he would run unsuccessfully for a seat at the Legislative Assembly of Ontario, but he was not successful. And in that election, he would finish second behind the Cooperative Commonwealth candidate, Tommy Thomas, by just over 2,000 votes. Thomas had held that riding since 1948 and would continue to hold it until 1963. On May 25, 1952, Starr was elected as Progressive Conservative to the House of Commons for the Ontario Electoral District in a by-election. For the next 16 years, he would serve in that position in Parliament as he rose in the party. His election was impressive considering the Liberals had held the riding, except from 1948 to 1949, since 1930. He also defeated John Lay, the nephew of longtime Prime Minister William Lyon Mackenzie King. While he was now a member of Parliament, Starr made the decision to serve out his term as mayor of Oshawa, which would end at the end of the year. On December 3, 1952, Starr would give his first speech in the House of Commons, and he would call for the federal government to create a new tax deal for the federal, provincial, and municipal governments. He cited that due to inflation, the municipalities were receiving now less money than they were 22 years ago from the government, and he would state, quote, what good is prosperity expressed in billions and millions if it is not reflected in the community and the home? End quote. As a member of Parliament, Starr worked to further the cause of ethnic groups and minorities. He would also help build the policy of old-age pensions policy in the Progressive Conservatives and to make the National Employment Service more humane for the unemployed. As the Minister of Labour from 1957 to 1963, he would extend unemployment benefits to women and seasonal workers, and he also extended federal financial assistance to the provinces. He would implement the Winter Works program, which pushed people to work in trades that provided employment all year round, rather than just from the spring to autumn. And having seen what unemployment did during the Great Depression, Starr was keenly aware of what it could do to a country, and he did not want it to happen again. Starr was well known for always having time for the people in his constituency, and there was often a lineup of people to his door on Saturday morning. Some people even came to talk to him when they were having marital problems. He was also very popular in the Ukrainian community. On March 9, 1958, he would visit Saskatoon where he attended a special tribute in his honour at the Ukrainian Hall. While there, he stated that John Diefenbaker, in appointing him as a cabinet minister, recognised a man for his worth, not his ancestry. He would state, quote, There are no second-class citizens in the Diefenbaker government, and complete representation of all races is the aim of Mr. Diefenbaker. End quote. Of course, one man in the audience asked what Starr was going to do for the other 99,999 men, including himself, who were out of work. Starr would smile and the meeting was closed. As Minister of Labour, Starr often had to deal with the strikes in Canada, including the 69-day strike in 1959, when 74 French Radio Canada producers walked off the job. René Levesque would meet with Starr and would state, quote, Not only did he not understand one word of French, but he didn't understand one damn word of what the French network was trying to say. End quote. But the biggest accomplishment for Starr was the fact that he was the first Canadian cabinet minister of Ukrainian descent in Canadian history. In 1961, Diefenbaker asked when he should call the next election. Starr stated he should call it in October before the winter and unemployment rises. Instead, Diefenbaker called his brother in Saskatchewan and listened to him, calling an election in the spring of 1962. In that election, Diefenbaker and the Progressive Conservatives lost 92 seats and fell from the largest majority in Canadian history to a minority government. 
1962, Starr was touted as a possible replacement for Diefenbaker. McLean's would report, quote, Part of the radical element is quietly touting Labour Minister Michael Starr as a potential leader, end quote. During the 1967 leadership convention for the Progressive Conservatives, Starr would put his name on the ballot. Many accused him of being a stalking horse for Diefenbaker, in that he was holding delegate support until Diefenbaker joined the campaign, but when Diefenbaker joined the leadership race, Starr did not withdraw, ending those rumours. Without the resources of the other candidates, he was unable to campaign as much as they did, and he focused on meeting with delegates and he proposed a wage and price freeze program, which would later be adopted in 1974 as an election campaign for the party. He would also suggest replacing personal income taxation with a trading tax on goods and services, something Brian Mulroney would implement in 1990 with the implementation of GST. His campaign manager at the time was Eric Nielsen, brother of Leslie Nielsen and future Deputy Prime Minister of Canada and a future subject of this podcast. In the leadership race, Starr finished the first round with 45 votes, sitting in ninth place. In the second round, he placed ninth again and had 34 votes. He would withdraw and chose not to endorse another candidate. As interim leader, Starr would return to the House of Commons on September 25, 1967, to serve as the leader of the opposition. The seat of Diefenbaker was vacant, and Starr took his usual seat to the left of Diefenbaker. The decision to have Starr serve as interim leader in the House was unanimous among the Progressive Conservatives. Starr was not sure he would even be chosen to be House leader, and he would say on September 11th that he would withdraw from the post if Stanfield wanted him to. He would state, quote, He might like to have someone closer to him in that position. End quote. Despite the internal conflict, Starr and his party came into the House of Commons strong. Starr would say, quote, What did the government expect us to do? Roll over and play dead? End quote. On October 3rd, after the first vote in the House of Commons as opposition leader, Starr was given a round of applause as he stood to vote. In 1968, one year after he served as the leader of the opposition, Starr would lose his re-election bid against Ed Broadbent, the future leader of the new Democratic Party. Broadbent would then hold the riding for the next 22 years until 1990. If you're running for Parliament, you go where the people are, the shopping centres, church meetings or park openings. And if you're running in a race as close as the one in Oshawa Whitby, you go to the mall. Ed Broadbent of the NDP helped open the new lacrosse box at Willow Park in Whitby. He's an assistant professor at York University, but comes from the Oshawa Whitby area. He says the big problems here are economic ones, and housing tops the list. Well, the, the main reason the housing is expensive right now, of course, is the high cost of land on the one hand, and the high cost of money or interest on the other. The program of the party is that the government should actively involve itself in mobilizing existing land resources um, and stop them from getting in the hands, particularly of land speculators. Now, to deal with that, we want we insist on a very high capital gains tax on land. Mike Starr was on hand to start the next game. The conservative member since 1953, he seems to know just about everyone. This will be the payoff. I'll have my clothes here in Oshawa now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've been doing all kinds of work for you since Oshawa? I'm here, you see. Right. And my husband's been having a fit because he's working for Val Scott. And you're working <laughs> for me. Well, that's wonderful. You're not coming home. <laughs> I'm glad to have you here. Now. Mr. Starr has lost the rural conservative votes of the old Ontario riding, but is still confident he'll be back in Parliament again this time. And Oshawa and Whitby were part of Ontario riding before him. 
I've won Oshawa six times out of seven, and I've won Whitby seven times out of seven. I expect to repeat that again. What about the question of national unity? Are many people talking about that? There are some who are worried about it, but in the main, uh, I think that they've, uh, they're not too preoccupied with this aspect. Liberal Des Newman, who travels everywhere with a white cloud of six beautiful action Trudeau girls, stopped off at a shopping center before visiting the park. He's the mayor of Whitby and says he's in the race because he believes in Mr. Trudeau. Mr. Newman, what are your uh, feelings on all this smut that's being raised about here, Elliot Trudeau? Well, madam, I, I think that you and uh, just everybody in this country is sick of it. Uh, it's, it's a very irresponsible position for those people who are seeking to promote this kind of thing because I think that uh, this is the same kind of thing that we have seen result in the in the uh, removal of some of our finest political people in this continent. Yes, and if one, if one generates this kind of hatred, I'm not sure how we, uh, how, we can, uh, how we can deal with it except that the society rejected itself. Both of the other candidates admit conservative Mike Starr is the man to beat, but each thinks that this time he can be beaten. Only the voters know for sure. Bill Casey, CBC News, Oshawa Whitby. In the end, Starr was beat by only 15 votes in the 1968 election. With the results so close, there was of course a recount. And at first, the initial result was a loss by 8 votes, but with the recount, that put the recount to 15 votes, for which Starr lost by. Starr had thought about appealing the election result, but in the end, would state that he decided against it because he, quote, didn't like the idea of it, end quote. According to Starr, the loss by such a small amount of votes would stay with him for a long time. And while he felt no ill will towards Broadbent, he did not like to talk about the election for much of his life. On August 8, 1968, the Vancouver province would report that Starr could not find a job and had no job offers after his time in Parliament. Starr would state, quote, I don't know what I'll be doing. I'm anxious to get back to work, but there is nothing. There is just nothing. So I'm just taking it easy for a while, end quote. As it turned out, Starr would become a citizenship court judge in Toronto until 1972. In 1973, he was appointed the chairman of the Workers' Compensation Board of Ontario, a position he would hold until 1978. And he would say of retiring, quote, See, I did retire. I've got the gold watch to prove it. End quote. During that time, he would be at odds with the New Democratic Party in 1977 when they stated they would use the Workers' Compensation Board in their campaign. Starr would state, quote, We'll fight them everywhere, all across the province if need be. End quote. Over the course of his life, Starr was honoured extensively. In 1979, he was appointed as the Honorary Colonel of the Ontario Regiment, a reserve armoured regiment in Oshawa. He would also be invested into the most venerable order of the Hospice of St. John of Jerusalem as an officer. He would be awarded the Queen Elizabeth II Coronation Medal, the Canadian Centennial Medal, and the Queen Elizabeth II Silver Jubilee Medal. In 1981, he was appointed as the Vice Chairman of the Liquor License Board of Ontario by Premier Bill Davis in Ontario. In 1983, an Ontario government building in Oshawa was named in his honour, and a recreational trail in the community is also named for him. That same year, he would state that he was too old to return to the political arena, but he kept busy with government business 12 hours a day. He would state, quote, I've got all sorts of ideas. Just because you get older doesn't mean your brain gets inactive. End quote. In his downtime, when not involved in various endeavours, Starr enjoyed sitting at home watching John Wayne movies and going to the Rotary Club in Oshawa. 
On March 16, 2000, Starr passed away at the age of 89. Perhaps a lasting legacy for Starr was that those around him said he was a nice man, who no one had a bad thing to say about. He was a modest man who did not like to talk about himself a lot. I hope you enjoyed that episode of my look at Michael Starr. Next week, we're looking at the man they call the greatest Prime Minister Canada never had, Robert Stanfield. If you like, you can email me at craig at canadaehx.com. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-A-I-R-D, and I'm on Instagram at Bairdo37. As well, again, if you want to support the podcast, you can for as little as $3 a month. Just go to patreon.com slash canadaehx. And you can donate to the podcast by going to canadaehx.com and clicking donate. I'd also like to thank all of my wonderful patrons, and I apologize if I get any names incorrect. Katie Caldwell, Jeff Hershey, Kyle Murray, Steve Pakin, Matthew Gartho, Lionel Romaine, Dr. Bob Turner, Brianna Fultz, Randy Hayden, Doug Campbell, Reg W., Deborah Carlson, Francis Helbling, Nick Zinri, Shannon Marshall, Clinton Martinez, Dimitri Shove, Aaron O'Hara Myers, Robert Dunseith, Todd Casey, Catherine Roy, Luke Guess, J.P. Bear, Jason Hall, Phil Maynard, and Iris Gray. Information from McLean's, Oshawa Express, Wikipedia, The Windsor Star, The Ottawa Journal, The Montreal Gazette, and The Saskatoon Star Phoenix. Thanks. We'll see you again next time. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.